0: I see yes okay shalom and welcome to this week's uh, class and this week's Torah portion is Shmini. I also want to mention that this Shabbat the Shabbat Mevarachim you'll read about that in the weekly email uh, it is the Shabbat before the month of Iyar and Iyar is a very special month uh, Iyar stands for Aleph Yud Yud Resh Avram Yitzvot Yaakov Rochel It also stands for the Pasuk, Ani Hashem Echa, I, God, will heal you. And hence, it is a month of healing. Okay, let's get into the Torah portion. The Torah portion immediately starts with a question. Why? Because the opening verse says, and it was the eighth day. The eighth day of what? Well, go back to last week's Torah portion, and you'll see that the end of last week's Torah portion is talking about the seven days of the inauguration from when they finished building the tabernacle. And then was the eighth day of the inauguration, which took it to a whole new level. For the first time, Aaron was serving, not just Moses. And that was the day that the cloud, the divine presence descended before the nation upon the holy tabernacle. And the question obviously is why did we separate the two readings? Why is last week's Torah portion about the first seven days and this week's Torah portion is about the eighth day? And then later on, you'll see that the Torah portion goes into the laws of kosher. Seemingly, we should have put the seven days together with this week and the laws of kosher, animals and species and fish and fowl, we should put it in the next portion this whole stop start seems to be, you know, it stops in middle of an issue and then it goes into a whole new issue when seemingly should have just taken the entire story of the inauguration and it should have said it in one Torah portion. So I'm gonna give you the quick answer to that. And the reason why we separated the seven days of the inauguration from the eighth day of the inauguration is because They are truly two completely different quantum leaps different between the seven days and the eighth day. And what is that all about? That the seven days represents nature. God created the world in seven days. We have the seven heavens. We have the seven years of sabbatical year. We have the seven sabbatical years to to the jubilee year. Uh, we're taught that the world was created for seven millenniums. Number seven represents the nature and not just mother nature, which is the glove, but also the divinity that sustains the nature, which is the hand of God within the glove. So everything about the seven Even as we're making the inauguration of the holy tabernacle, it is all within the finite capacity of nature. Then comes along the eighth day. The eighth day is one plus seven. And the one, the aleph, like in the word echad from the Shema, refers to alufo shel olam, the master of the universe. So here on the eighth day, we are reaching, we are transcending, reaching into the infinite to the miraculous. And hence, we have all the teachings that while the harp of, of David had seven strings, then there was the ones of Mashiach, has eight, and there'll be the time of 10. We have the story of the Brit Milah, again, the transrational, the transcendence into the infinite is on the eighth day. We have the miracle of Hanukkah, eight days, whenever we talk about the number eight we're transcending into a quantum leap it's the it's a total new magnitude it's not nature being stretched to further heights but rather it is it is propelling us from finite nature into the infinite divinity And, and therefore this week's torah portion is completely completely a new torah portion And we'll talk about this in a moment. I want to just jump for a moment to the second question I asked. Okay, so we understand why the seven and the eight were separated. Because it's not a flow. Yes, the seven comes before the eight. We have to do everything we can within our human capacity. However, then we need to open up to a total new level of open-mindedness, open-heartedness, transparency, self nullification of getting out of the way so that True divinity can flow to us, and that's number eight. However, why do we talk about kosher? Why do we talk about kosher in this Torah portion? What does that have to do with eight? And especially that the name of the Torah portion is Shemini, eight. Now, the name of the Torah portion encompasses every part of the Torah portion. Hence, what is the connection between the laws of kosher and the and number eight, which is transcendence? seemingly the laws of kosher has to do with eating has to do with sustenance has to do even the divine spark within the food it's all about giving sustenance to nature to life so that should be part of seven not part of eight hence i want to just quickly introduce an amazing concept that the Rebbe talks about and that is eight is not one separated and seven rather the power of eight is that we draw the infinite one into the seven, and the seven is transformed by the one. So, what we're doing here is it's not about separating, it's not about being schizophrenic, sp- split personality. When I'm Jewish, I'm miraculous, and then when I have to make a living and I'm in the street, then I'm just another John, uh, you know, or uh, McDonald or whatever. No, we need to know that in Shul, we're coming as a seven to open up for the eight. And in our office, we're allowing the seven to be completely transparent to the eight. What does that mean, practically speaking? What that means is that I don't have this Dr. Jekyll with the height that in synagogue God controls the world in my office, the stock market, the foreign market, the the business minds, the the Bill Gates, and then then the, the Warren Buffett, they're in control. But rather, I need to know that in synagogue, I need to be practical and grounded, and in my office, I need to know that God, the God of the synagogue is the God of my office. And everything I do in furthering education of my business and my professionalism, and in all the work I do, and in all the due diligence I do, I'm creating a natural vessel for God's blessing. And without God's blessing, all my vessels are to north. As King Solomon says in the chapter that he composed in Psalms, that if God doesn't watch the city, then in north do the guards stand. Guard? And if God doesn't build the house, then in north do the builders build. Now, of course, we have to have guards, and of course, we have to have builders. However, there, we need to know that everything we do is just working on the glove for God's hand. Hence, the number eight tells me that in the synagogue, I have to be practical on seven. I have to come on time to the services and I have to use my mind and my heart and my study and pray for my family and pray for sustenance and not become abstract spiritual. And then in my office, I need to know that I'm not just a businessman, I'm a Jewish businessman. And there's a mezuzah on my office door. And there's a charity box in my office. And when I talk to someone on business, it's okay to also throw in a word of spirituality, a word of spiritual embrace, community strengthening, because that's the number eight, the consummation of one and seven. Now, where does that express itself more than having God dictate to us that even in eating it's all about eating kosher because everything about my body which is seven number seven is about being transparent open and communicated and aligned with number eight hence the fact that God is telling me not just how to be spiritual but how to eat to make sure that my eating is Jewish, my eating is kosher. That's what number eight is all about. The consummation of one and seven of divinity and nature. Okay, with that being said, now let's go into the story that Aaron is going to go ahead and do the inauguration. However, Aaron is very timid about this all. Why is Aaron very timid about this all? So to understand this, we need to understand that ultimately speaking, the tabernacle, the entire tabernacle is all about one primary concept. And that is that when when the Jews made the golden calf, they sinned with the golden calf, God said to Moses that I will send an angel, I will not walk in their midst. And if you remember, Moses took his tent and moved it outside of the camp because he said he who is excommunicated to the teacher must also be excommunicated from the student. So the whole concept of the golden calf created that God's presence was no more dwelling amongst the Jews. God was protecting the Jews, but God was no more amongst the Jews. Hence the opening commandment of building the tabernacle was where God said and you will make for me a sanctuary and I will dwell in their midst. Hence the real moment on the eighth day was to see if they succeeded in soliciting forgiveness and favor from God so that God would now once again dwell amongst them. Now, Aaron was super timid because Aaron carried the responsibility. He was the leader while Moses was for 40 days and 40 nights on the mountaintop. Hence, he was responsible when they made the golden calf. And therefore, Aaron was super worried about whether he doing the service would be good for the Jewish people. On top of that Moses tells them to bring a specific sacrifice of an eagle of a calf which would be the actual atonement for the sin of the golden calf. Hence Aaron is timid and Moses tells Aaron you were chosen from this for this. Go do what you're supposed to do. And sure enough God Moses tells the Jewish people that God told him this you will do. And then my cloud of signifying my presence will rest upon the uh, the tabernacle. And sure enough, they do it, and the cloud does not descend. Aaron turns to Moses and says, what did you do to me? Why did you create this, this moment of such deep inner shame for me? The Jewish people turn to Moses and say, in naught have we done all of this? Moses prays and the cloud appears. Now, we're going from there to another story, which is quite a horrific story, which is that on Aaron's ultimate day of glory and destiny, the day he became the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, two out of four sons die. Why did they die? The verse says that they brought a foreign offering of incense on the golden altar and a ray of the fire on the golden altar shot up both their nostrils and consumed their soul. Their soul left their bodies. And literally they weren't it was not a fire that they were burned. Their clothes was whole, their body was whole, it entered their nostrils and drew forth their their souls and moses tells aaron you and your sons your remaining sons will not deal with the dead you can you're in your inauguration you cannot become impure rather he turns to their cousins and tells their cousins to take care and he tells aaron that your loss will be mourned by the entire jewish people and then he tells aaron I knew that there will be the holy ones, the ones that are super close to God, that will be a sanctification of the holy temple. And when I found that out, I, saw, I thought it would be you and me. Hence, we now see that your sons were holier than you and I. By the way, in the writings of the great Kabbalist, Rabbi Isaac Luria, Nadav A'viu has more than once reincarnations Throughout the history of the Jewish people, and he talks about what their tikkun was, what their correction was. The Rebbe in Hasidus explains that what happened was that they experienced a yearning beyond the power of flow. They ebbed beyond the flow. They got so close and had such a deep yearning for divinity, and instead of balancing themselves out and saying. We need to stop. We cannot humanly sustain this level of closeness, love, and yearning. They went further, and that's why their souls left their body in the deepest yearning. Now, I wanted to share with you Aaron's response is is documented in the Torah, and all it says is by Yidom Aaron, and Aaron remain silent. And I want to just share that it's okay not to have the capacity to absorb what is happening to you, what God is doing. We don't always have to be able to wrap our head around it. We don't have to always look strong. We don't have to always walk like we got this. It's okay. It's okay to be overwhelmed by what God is putting us through. But the correct response then is, that It's okay to remain silent. We don't need to speak in a time when we're overwhelmed. Speech then can lead to one of two things. Disassociation or really expressing anger towards God. And either one of those is not healthy. It's okay to remain silent until we can digest, mourn, cry, and move on with what's happening. Okay, and after that, God tells um, uh, um, Aaron the laws of that one should not be intoxicated. One is not allowed to be intoxicated when he works in the holy temple. Uh, a Cohen who works while he's intoxicated, it's punishable by death. And from there, we also learn, because the verse says, not to give any rulings, so from here we see that a rabbi in a courthouse is not allowed to answer questions when they are intoxicated. Okay, let's go ahead and just jump forward to kosher, and that is chapter 11. I want to give you a brief synopsis of kosher, and then I want to talk about it on a deeper level. So, Kosher is divided in different levels. Excuse me one second. Number one, the species. So let's talk about the animals. The species of the animals that are kosher are those that have two physical signs one is split hoofs, and the other one is that it chews its cud, it regurgitates. Now, that is concerning the species that are kosher. Now, besides the species of kosher, there are other laws of kosher involved here. So, for example, the the laws of kosher mandates that the animals have to be slaughtered in a specific way. It has to be with an absolute perfect knife with no nicks so that it doesn't pull and tear it literally cuts right through it has to go through both the windpipe and the esophagus and it has to be done without pushing or anything it has to be smooth painless immediately cutting off the oxygen to the brain which cuts off all feelings and hence the animal has no pain and it has to be done right and besides the shechita, there's another law. The animal has to be without any wound that would have it die within 12 months. Hence, in part of my ordination, as a rabbi, my smicha, I learned the laws of trefus, which we literally went through every single part of the animal, knowing which is vital and which is not vital, what kind of wound is vital and what kind of wound is not vital, and therefore fatal. So, therefore, all of this has to be checked. So, after the Shochet goes ahead and does the right slaughtering and the Mashkiach sees that it was done right, then the animal has to be opened, the lungs have to be checked all the parts of the animal which are vital organs have to be checked to make sure that they're all whole and the animal was not in a health position where it would die on its own within 12 months. Number two. Number three. There are certain parts of the animal that are forbidden to be eaten, mostly in the hind quarters. Therefore, outside of Israel, we don't even touch the hind quarters. The hind part of the animal is sold to the non-kosher meat pack, meat plant for Gentiles. We don't even touch it. Now, another issue: there can be no blood. We are for- prohibited to taste or eat any blood. Therefore, there's a specific. Washing, soaking, wiping, salting, and again, soaking process with the meat. And his entire laws how this has to be done. Now, because of what I told you, there are going to be kosher species animals which we can't eat. If it was not, if it was not slaughtered right, if it was not salted and the blood wasn't extracted within 72 hours, we then say that the blood went into the flesh itself and could never be extracted. If the animal was wounded, if there was a punctured lung. So all these things, even though it's a kosher species, it is not kosher. Now, there are certain animals that even though it's a kosher species, we were not handed down in tradition where to slaughter them. Hence, the giraffe is a kosher species, but we can never eat it. We just don't know how to slaughter it correctly. A giraffe has split hooves and chooses cut. Okay. That's about the animal species. Concerning fowl. Fowl, we are not given any signs, even though the sages extrapolated what all the kosher birds and non-kosher birds have in common, and it's a certain um, way the feet hold but that's not biblical. Biblically speaking, we are given names of species that are kosher, names of species that are not kosher. And here we are very careful to only stick to those species of fowl that we know we have always eaten. So while most most of the birds are kosher, most of the species of birds are kosher, but because we don't have clear tradition in them, we stick to only the ones that we know. There's the chicken, there's a the turkey, there's the uh, duck, there's the uh, geese. Other than that, even though the birds are kosher, we don't touch them. Now the difference with a bird is that the bird being slaughtered because it's a much more fragile, you don't have to cut both the windpipe and the esophagus, only one. Also the checking, there isn't a lung issue You check carefully just because the chickens are constantly eating around, pecking at the floor, you need to be sure that something they ate didn't puncture their insides, so you have to check their insides. The bird also has to be, all the blood has to be extracted. Okay, there goes the bird species. Now, fish. Fish has two signs. It has to have fins and scales. It's that simple. Fish is the easiest thing to do in keeping kosher because it doesn't have to be slaughtered. There is no such thing as fish blood per se halachically that you're not allowed to eat. So really, it's all very simple. So halachically speaking, if you know that there's a fish that is kosher, even if it's in a non-kosher plate, it comes from a non-kosher store, You have to be careful with the knives and the stuff that they use. But practically speaking, a kosher fish, you don't have to worry about because you didn't need a rabbi slaughtering it. You didn't need to remove the blood. So it's the easiest thing to keep kosher with. Now, moving along to grasshoppers. There are five types of grasshoppers that are kosher. They have specific signs and because especially the Ashkenazim feel that we don't have the tradition of them we don't touch grasshoppers but biblically speaking there are certain types of grasshoppers that are kosher okay then it goes into the laws of dead carcasses of kosher animals not kosher animals earthenware not earthenware so forth and so on but I don't want to go there right now. I want to go more into the practical kitchen. The laws of the practical kitchen really doesn't have a lot what to do with what we just said. Why? Because today, by the time you buy meat, it's already been completely kosherized with a stamp, a double stamp of kosher. So basically, today, kosher... As long as you're conscious of the kosher symbols, which ones are reliable, and you're conscious of the DE, which is dairy equipment, you're conscious of the D, which is dairy, you're conscious of the P, actually P is Passover, but there's Pariv. As long as you're conscious about the, the works that the rabbis are doing and you stick to the right way, you don't have to worry about kosher products. They're all there. winn Publix, Walgreens, Walmart, they're all there. So you have one can of one company that's not kosher, and then right next to it is the can that is kosher. Now, if you're gonna ask me if it's the same product, why is this kosher, this not kosher? Very simple, why? Because certain plants use lard to, to keep their machines moving. That would make it a problem. Um, you know, or if they run out of a product, they'll grab another product and replace it. Kosher companies have the rabbis that are consistently there to make sure that doesn't happen. So even if you read the ingredients and all the ingredients are kosher, the product itself can be absolutely not kosher. For example, one of the interesting concepts that I myself called a plant because I was wondering, why would tea, why do I need to worry about tea if it's kosher or not? So I called up the plant and the plant told me, that they make all the teas in the same plant. Some of them are fried in oil. Some of them are baked. Some of them have certain products added onto them, infused in them. Amongst them, you also have dairy. And amongst them, you also have grapes. And that creates a problem for simple tea, which is all organic. And why would there be a problem? So you should know that you cannot rely on just reading ingredients. However, The primary thing that's going to happen today in your kitchen, if you're careful with the products that you bring into your house, is going to be the milk and meat. That's where things get complicated. And that's where we have to be careful. So now I just wanna share with you. Number one, the problem of milk and meat is when the flavor transfers. Flavor transfers only in heat. You do not need a dairy fridge and a meat fridge. You just don't need it, not a problem. If you put both meat and milk into the fridge, they're not gonna transfer flavor. However, if you put two separate pots into the oven, one is a, uh, a, a whatever, a, a cheese uh, quiche, whatever, and the other one is a chocolate, that becomes a problem because when the oven heats up, flavor is now transferring. There's the expansion and the opening of the pores of the pots. The oven itself is absorbing flavor. That becomes a problem. So therefore, we have separate dishes, separate pots and pans, separate dishwashers because it reaches the the heat that transfers flavor. Then we have the oven itself, we keep separate. Now, stovetops. Stovetops are not a major problem. Some keep separate, but you don't have to if you don't have one in your apartment because every time you turn on the stovetop, the coils get red. If they get red, they self kosher themselves. Now, the process of koshering is very simple. The way the flavor is absorbed, the flavor is extracted. So, for example, an oven, if you put it on self-clean, it's going to reach a heat that it never reaches during cooking, which means that there's going to be a greater expansion and everything will be brought out of the walls. Hence, when you kosher an oven, when you self-clean an oven, it becomes kosher. And we can do the same thing with a dishwasher. We go to the water heater in your house. We turn up the temperature. You unscrew that little metal thing. You open up and you turn up the temperature so that the water is going to get hotter than it ever got. You run your dishwasher empty. The hot water that's going in there is hotter than any time that you had your dishes in there. I will tell you be very careful to then turn back down your heat, your heater, or the next time you take a shower, God forbid, you're really going to get burnt. And voila, it's kosher. Um, There's microwaves. There's opinions that if you take out the dish, the dish you kosher in a boiling hot pot, but the microwave itself doesn't touch the food. It's through the steam. So if you put a glass of water there and you have it bubbling, not just there, but bubbling for three minutes, there are those that say that that's good enough. It's kosher. So the process of all of this, there are certain things you cannot kosher, which is earthenware. Earthenware cannot be kosher because they absorb and you can never bring it back out. Glass, them actually use glass openly for everything because glass is the polar opposite of, of earthenware. It never absorbs, so it never becomes non-kosher. Okay, so that pretty much is the high and low of the kosher kitchen as we know it today okay i'm gonna share with you something to be stringent can sometimes be a sin because it leads to baltash destroying useful products so just decide ah, you know what i'm not sure about this i'm throwing out the pot who gave you the right to throw out a pot God blessed you with finances and money and with this pot. Who gave you the right to throw it out? That's called Baltashkas, That's called destructive. So you should know that you ask a rabbi and you follow what he tells you. And don't be, as they call, holier than thou. Okay? Okay. And just that you should know, the more ignorant one is, the more one tends to be stringent because one's not sure. The more learned one is, the more one knows that this is not an issue. This is an issue. This could be kosher, this can't be kosher. He knows the questions to ask. How much dairy was there in the face of how much um, meat? How old was it since it was last used? There's so many things that the law tells us and one shouldn't just decide by themselves. It's okay, I'm throwing out the set. I'm going to buy a new set. No, don't, don't do that. Okay, so that was pretty much the class on the Parsha. Now I want to talk about kosher. I want to talk about kosher on a higher dimension. Number one. It is important to understand what we today know about the effect that everything has upon us. The effect of the air we breathe, very clear. You live in, in, in Chernobyl, God forbid, there's gonna be issues just from the air that you're breathing. We know that we're affected by the waters we drink. We know that we're affected by what we eat. We know that we're even affected by the thoughts we have. So when we talk about food and food literally becomes our blood and body cells, that's literally what happens as it goes through the intestines and as the minerals are drawn out of the food and that becomes into the blood system and that feeds the the organs and the cells. Literally what we eat becomes who we physically are. Now, being that we now know that every single cell of the body has its consciousness, while we once believed that only the brain had conscious and every other cell did not have conscious, we today know that while there is the intellect of the soul, there's also the intellect of the body, we actually know, for example, in therapy, uh, things that our brain protected us from remembering horrific stuff that happened to us as kids We now know that we can use body memory, not brain memory to connect us to it. We also know that every single cell has its, its, its process of consciousness. And we know that cells are completely, always continuously redefining themselves. We know that what we thought was hardware today is really software. And we're consistently, consistently changing who we are from our neurosynaptics of the brain, from our chemicals, from our cells. We're consistently evolving. Hence, so too it is with the animal. And so too it is that the traits of the animal are actually affecting the cells of their flesh. And hence, we know that when we eat, We are affected, literally affected, on a cellular level, on a a, a intellectual level, on a paradigm level, on an emotional level. We are affected by what we eat, not just from the health patterns of the actual what we eat, but even the energy of that which we eat. Hence, kosher has a far deeper implication than just affecting our soul. So much so that the verse says about kosher that we become, our sages extrapolate from that word, that we become stuffed, closed. We become coarse. Literally, by eating non-kosher, we literally become our mind loses its refined capacity of higher intellect our heart loses its capacity of higher sensitivities so we're not just talking about the spirituality of the soul we're also talking about the metaphysical and spirituality consciousness and energy of the body of the mind of the heart of our personality So keeping kosher is not a simple matter. Now, I want to share with you two things that it says in Maimonides. Maimonides talks twice about how life, life overrules laws, besides three specific laws. For example, he says it twice. He says it concerning the laws of Shabbat. If someone needs to be rushed to the hospital on Shabbat, you don't take the simpleton and say, and eh, listen, he's not such a Torah guy anyway, let him drive. No, 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 no. The rabbi himself has the mitzvah, mitzvah big doilim. It's the mitzvah of the more prominent members and scholars to be the one to get into the car, start the engine and drive the person to the hospital. So much so that on Yom Kippur, the Altarev himself on Yom Kippur went to chop wood to cook for a woman that just gave birth, who was literally on her deathbed because no one was there to take care of her. Now, Rebbe didn't send some Joe Schmo. He himself took off his talit, left his shul on Yom Kippur and did it. The second time Imanis talks about it is in the laws of Kashrut. So if you need to eat something that's not kosher, the doctor tells you you need to eat this to cure your issue. The law is that you eat non-kosher, plain and simple. However, an interesting difference in the two laws. By Shabbat, the Rambam does not say that you should meditate, contemplate, and do Teshuvah. Why did God put you in a position that you had to transgress Shabbat? He doesn't say that at all. You don't have to be sad about it. Quite the contrary, you are fortunate enough to be able to save another Jew's life. However, when it comes to kosher, even though Maimonides says that you eat what's not kosher to save your life, Maimonides then says that the person should contemplate and do teshuva, asking himself, why did God put me in a position where I had to eat non-kosher, To save my life. Now. The question is why. If someone would measure. Which law. Has greater. A greater strength in Judaism. It's Shabbat. Shabbat. Desecrating Shabbat is punishable by death. Eating non-kosher is not punishable by death. So why is it that by Shabbat. When you have to desecrate to save your life. You don't have to contemplate. Why did Hashem do this to me. But when you eat non-kosher to save your life, you should contemplate why Hashem put this in me, put me in this situation. So I want to share with you that one of the answers I heard from one of my teachers is very simple. Shabbat is spiritual. Once you did what you did on Shabbat, it has no physical effect on you because God told you that you can transgress that Shabbat So therefore, it's not an issue. The spiritual issue is no more an issue because the God who told you to keep Shabbat told you to transgress Shabbat. The animal, the non-kosher food that one eats is not just spiritual. It has an impact on your mind, on your heart. It remains impactful after it's done and over with. Hence, Maimonides is saying that even though God told you that you should eat this non-kosher in order to save your life, however, that didn't change the fact that the spiritual, biological, and energy impurities of that non-kosher food now became part and parcel of you and it is affecting your mind and your heart and your spirituality. So kosher is, is the ultimate concept of number eight where the spiritual and the physical are absolutely consummated. It's not just a spiritual reality of keeping kosher and not eating non-kosher. It's actually a physical experience keeping kosher keeps us physically more refined keeps our mind more open to refined higher intellects and spirituality keeps our heart refined to higher sensitivities and keeps our body energy level i don't mean feeling strong or not i'm talking about the flow what we today know through quantum physics that everything is energy turned into mass the energy core the energy field of our physical body is being affected by what we eat which comes together with the energy field of that which we are eating hence the ultimate moment of jewishness where soul and body unite as one one and seven become eight where we physically are experiencing divinity is in the laws of kosher and with that i'm going to close it up and open up for questions